Hello and welcome back to chapter 3 of the Director's Diary. First of all, I have to say a massive, massive thank you for all your feedback so far. What this shows me is there is an absolute need for this podcast, a need for these kind of conversations that don't happen regularly enough. And what I've also seen is thank yous and feedback from people from a wide variety of vocations, from dancers, producers, designers, directors. Kind of a breadth of vocation shows that there's a real need through all freelancers in the in the arts. This episode focuses on personal finance. I know for me this is one of the biggest hurdles I face as a freelancer. I know others are the same. It's not easy and it's something that doesn't have one solution, but I hope that the tactics and the techniques that I share here make it a little bit easier. So without further ado, let's dive straight into chapter three. My name is Alex Palmer, this is the director's diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary. So if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. Okay, so the first note in my diary says, don't sell yourself the idea of what it's going to be like. And what do I mean by this? I mean, um, there's often a preconception of when you leave training or when you leave university that it's going to be a certain way. And even as rudimentary as being, as saying to yourself, I'm going to be a director. And what does that even mean? Um, and you kind of create this image where you sell yourself the idea of what it's going to be like. And often what happens is people fall into other jobs or they have to get another job, maybe even a non-arts job. And that in itself feels like a backward step because of the idea that you've sold yourself. So my advice to anyone in training at university or even just out of it is don't be fancy about the idea of what it's going to be like and to to see working another job not as a backward step as a kind of progression from training um, into the real world that where you need to pay rent and live it's also for me good advice to be hardy and um, resilient and to embrace rejection. I know a lot of actors are told to embrace rejection in training and that that it's part of the job and that is absolutely true. But I don't think producers, directors, designers are told that enough, actually. And something that sticks in my mind from a, a mentor of mine is they said that for every 10 applications you put in or bids you put in, you can expect one to come back. Or maybe two to come back and one to be successful. But it's that kind of one in 10 is the ratio that I work to. And once you realise that that is the reality for everyone, um, one rejection becomes part of the nine that you need to get that one. So it's just about reframing that rejection, not as a failure, but as a natural progression in freelance life. What you also realise is that is par for the course for everyone. And I think I definitely fell into this trap of seeing rejection as a reflection on my talents or my efforts and and kind of thinking I was way below everyone else and and it's just not the case everyone is going through this it's the kind of reason why I started this podcast to to make that evident and to to get other people's opinions on board to get other guests on so that you can know if you are a writer for example that someone who is 10 years down their career is still um, battling with these kind of rejections 
I also think it's not helpful um, the kind of climate we're in in terms of people shouting about what they do online. So often we see people shouting about what they're doing in when they're on a project or when they're working in their arts job. And if you're not in that position, you feel like you're somehow behind. And obviously you're not going to hear about these people working other jobs because that's not what they want to foreground. So you're not going to see the producer who's spent four or five years in hospitality and then um, and then has made it like really successful. You're not going to see that unless you know them. And you're not going to see that director who's worked in multiple jobs, from city council dead-end jobs to um, working in retail to working in a restaurant. That director is me, by the way. You're not going to see all of that because I'm not going to shout about it because that's not what I want you to see. And there is something about the climate and the kind of atmosphere, you know, this kind of Instagram culture of putting your putting a filter on everything and putting only the best forward to the public sphere. But that's, that's a bigger problem. But the main point there is don't feel like because you're not there that you're somehow a failure. It's about just reframing and knowing that those people are not talking about the hardships and the the slog that has been getting to that place of working in an arts job. Also, for any actors out there, I don't know a single actor, and I've been directing for four or five years, who hasn't worked another job as well as acting. Does that mean that they're working in dead-end jobs? Absolutely not. They're, they're being creative with their income and diversifying what they are offering. So I know actors who can sing, who offer singing lessons, people who teach and are really successful speakers because their skill is speaking and they maximise that as well as acting. But if you're an actor, I would really look at what else you can offer because being an actor full-time is quite rare unless you're the David Tennant's Judy Dentures of the world. So the next note I have in my diary is what job do you take? And this is kind of aimed at those people just out of training, maybe recent graduates who are looking at, okay, so we're looking at settling down in the city, where should I start looking? And I guess, it, of course, it depends on what vocation you want to be doing. If you, It's going to change massively if you're a dancer or an actor to if you're a producer or a director or a designer. It's, it's going to change depending on where, you, where your end point is. The main differential here is whether you go for an arts organisation and try and progress there or whether you do a non-arts job to maybe fund yourself in as a freelancer. So do you, for example, take a job in an arts organisation part-time and see that as a kind of amazing opportunity? I mean, this is what I would actually advise if you can do it. The problem with, with this is that they're quite hard to come by. But if you're working at a building or a venue, for example, those transferable skills will do the world of good and you can network and you can learn from how a company or a venue work and then position yourself as a freelancer better in the in the industry. I also think having an established company or a venue on your CV also gives you a sense of credibility and um, but also gives you opportunities in the future to be be in those circles and in those conversations. I know a lot of organisations who hire freelancers from the people in their building 
And there's a big problem with that because there are freelancers in the city making work who don't get a look in. But if you can get into those buildings, that is how to do it. And if it's a non-art job, I think the equation I go for here is what job can you do which gives you the most amount of money for the least amount of time? So speaking from a personal point of view, I work three days a week um, at a, as the highest grade possible I could get. So yeah, working at the city council paid really well. It was three days, which gave me four days of the week to plan riptide stuff. So th this is kind of part-time job plus hustle. And I think the equation works until the hustle, whatever you're doing freelance-wise, pays as much or more than your part-time job. I think that's a good equation to go by. And it's a practical thing. You're getting a standard income that you can guarantee, that pays your rent, that you, you, know, you live within your means, and then as soon as your freelance life takes off, then you drop your part-time job that you don't particularly want to progress in anyway. For me, I would add a side note here that are you taking a job that progresses you and your skills? So are you looking at those jobs that position you as a freelancer in a better way? So uh, being a barista, for example, doesn't do anything in terms of the arts world. But being a project manager for a company somewhere does help you because you can show the transferable skills. And I hate that word transferable skills, but um, yeah, it's, it's cringe, but it also has practical elements to it. My next note in my diary is, and this is absolutely aimed at me, um, stop comparing yourself to people further down the line. I have absolutely learnt this lesson the hard way and it's taken me four years since leaving university to realise this. The kind of toxic mentality of comparing yourself to companies who are 20 years down the line is, I would argue, a natural thing but also probably one of the most harmful things you can do to yourself. It's good to have people who you admire and work that you want to aspire to. It's bad to compare what you're doing now to their work. Because what you've got to realise is that these people have you know, budgets way over what you can even think about. And another thing I would add to this is what are you doing day to day that will help you get there? So there's no point comparing yourself and doing nothing what work are you putting in personally that allows you to reach that level? It's okay to take a weekend off. It's okay to take a day off in the week. That's why we're freelancers. It's because we, well, I mean, I'm speaking for all of you here because it's a one-way thing, but I have become a freelancer because I don't want to work nine to five. I don't want to work Monday to Friday. I work better in the evenings, for example. I work better little bits every single day rather than nine to five five days a week and you have x amount of holiday days it's just not the life I want to live personally and I think if you're like me I think you have to balance that with okay what are you doing about it day to day what's your work ethic how are you self-disciplining yourself I think with that comes 
it leads nicely into the next point is invest in yourself. The next note in my diary. And I, the people I know rarely do invest themselves in the way that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about investing and developing your skills as the freelancer that you are. So as a director, are you reading plays? As a producer, are you organising budgets of fake, uh, made-up shows so that when the real show comes along, you have budgets ready? Or, or at least you're exercising that muscle of creating budgets and thinking about that. I, if you're a dancer, are you an are you actually dancing? And that's that seems really weird, but I think if especially if you're working a part time job, um, are you actually still practicing that practical thing? If you're an actor, are you um, rehearsing a little bit every day? If you're a writer, are you actually writing every day? Um, I'm looking forward to talking to Chris O'Connor, who is our one of our writers at Riptide and, and I know that he tries to write every single day um, because it's a skill that you have to keep practicing. Are you investing the money that you earn into courses or to learn new skills? Are you learning stage combat for a, as a, an actor? Are you going on design courses to learn CAD, for example, that might help you in a commission? Are you investing in yourself? Are you are you also networking and talking to the people that can progress you and give you training? And training, I don't mean formal training, I mean like asking someone for a coffee and kind of trying to reverse engineer where they are to better position yourself. I did a talk recently at a university and told the students, and they were kind of amazed by this, but that if you ask me for coffee, the, the answer is probably going to be yes, of course I'll meet you for coffee. Um, the one thing I have at the moment, especially, you know, not being in a project, is time. I can't offer you uh, the rehearsal room. I can't. That's kind of a sacred thing, especially for directors. It's a sacred space that very rarely you get an insight into the rehearsal room. But if you ask them for lunch or for coffee, you're more likely to get in and you're more likely actually to get, get their full attention as well. It's probably a better thing. So one thing I said I was going to talk about in this podcast is about kind of personal finance and um, one thing I don't think is talked about is tax and as a freelancer how do you organise yourself and kind of tactics there. So I'm going to spend you know five minutes talking about tax, talking about um, things that would have helped me four years ago. You know, where I mean for. I've got to start this with where is the tax module on at uni or where, or even college you know you have kind of general studies we have kind of limited sex education but where is the kind of practical um filing your own tax report uh, and tax return or where is the um I want to buy a house how do I get a mortgage kind of lessons like you know the practical stuff where is that at college Anyway, I digress. So, so this is kind of advice for after you've gone to HMRC and filed for self-employed or maybe sole trader. That's, and that kind of means that you're, the way I think about it is that you're a mini business, say Joe Bloggs who produces, and anything Joe Bloggs gets in terms of freelance producer work, that is like a company getting 
getting commissioned to, to work. And Joe Bloggs is allowed to get £12,500 tax-free. And anything over that threshold, he has to pay tax on. Or she has to pay tax on. And this is done every January. So every January you submit your tax return, which covers a period of April to April, and it's the previous year. So um, January 19 has just done April to April, uh, 17 to 18. I always get confused by that, but I think that's right. And if you're earning over £12,500, yeah, you have to have to pay tax on it and they would they will work it all out for you um and but what i would add this what you can do is you can claim tax back so say if you earn fourteen thousand pounds you might not be paying any tax because that extra one and a half thousand pounds you could have spent one and a half thousand pounds on things you can claim back on so that might be travel for work purposes that might be buying a computer i think you can I think if you buy a new laptop for work, you can claim a third of the price back from tax. So you, you basically just say what you've spent. Um, that's why people say keep receipts, because you can claim back on those things. What you can't claim back on is anything that's non-work related. So you can't claim back on your rent and you can't cl claim back on a food shop or your clothes. Um, and the way I think about it is if I was a plumber, what would help me do my work it would be the van it would be the the actual physical tools that I need to do the work so for producer that it's kind of the the computer isn't it and it's the I think you can claim back on the rent of an office or it's a proportion of the electricity bill and that kind of thing and when you work from home it gets a bit grey and I would have to look that up but I think that, well, the bottom line is it's you can claim back on things that you've spent that help you do your job. One thing, and probably the most important thing I will say on this episode, is the next note I've got here, which says, save one third or one quarter of your freelance earnings. Now, this came as quite a shock for me. I try and save anyway, and I think that's a good thing to do generally. When it comes to tax returns, and you work it all out, and you say how much you've earned, and you say how much you claim back, and if you've done well, you may get a big lump sum from HMRC saying you owe £1,000 in tax, for example. And they will want that in a lump sum, because... They, they will presume that you have saved the money and um, and have it ready to just give them. So they'll, they'll charge you that money. What they will also do is charge half of next year, which they will work out as roughly the same as this year. So what you're doing there, at the end of this tax return, you are paying £1,500, which can come as quite a shock, especially if you're not prepared for it. And this is something people never say. This is something that came as a shock to me and my friends who did this for the first time and paying that amount of money I mean I know people have paid more than that paying that amount of money as a as a one-off lump like fee is really difficult especially if you're living as a freelancer who doesn't earn a lot of money outside of 
um, like their their needs. So you know you can't save. That is a, a big kind of kick in the teeth. So save a third of your freelance earnings, and then that tax when that tax return comes through, it's not so much of a shock. And I think what I'll do is I'll end this chapter on a reflection on where I am at the minute, just to give you an insight into that. Um, and I'll ki try and keep it in keeping with the kind of personal finance aspect of it. Because this is something people rarely say. And, um, and I think it's useful to see how, I mean, the reason why I'm doing this podcast, one of them, is that people could look back on where Riptide, where I am, four years after graduating and see that there is still struggle and kind of what tactics and what we were thinking. I think it's kind of interesting. If no one listens to this, I'm still learning myself in terms of where we are and it's kind of a nice documentary, like documentation for us in terms of, okay, what were we thinking four years ago? So yeah. So... I recently got an Arts Council bid. This is uh, January, February 2019. Um, and I think for me, it's for a, a piece called Sonda, which is a binaural, a binaural walk experience, so kind of 360 sound. And it's a small team. It's a, one writer, two musicians, and me. And... It's a kind of experimental project. It's the first time we're delivering an app. It's the first time we're doing something binaural. And what it, this has allowed me to do is be a bit strategic. For three or four months, I'm living within my means. And it's allowed me a little bit of breathing space financially to line up another bid so that when the money runs out, let's say end of May, June, that... I should have another Arts Council thing lined up, or at least another project that keeps me going. I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, if this podcast stops, you know why. <laughs> so, and, and before the bid, this is being really honest, it was my overdraft that was keeping me afloat. And if I didn't have that, I would have definitely, definitely had to come up with money from somewhere else. That And that probably would have meant taking... A job somewhere you know stopping riptide for a bit for a for a bit over christmas and january i was contemplating moving out of my flat and moving back home like it got to that point of if we don't get this bid it could mean like crisis mode and the kind of i've i've been there before definitely it's not the first time and i know people who have been there in the past and have have had actually to move home or take another job completely like full-time job I'm stopping my arts thing until I can get back on my feet and the people say a lot of things about being a freelancer is about like staying power and kind of it's kind of like the Grand National where we're all horses just trying to get over these fences and some of the horses um, fall and some of them complete the race you know I think I think it's a little bit like that um, but yeah, my, my overdraft definitely saved me. And a reflection for me as well that's coming up to the kind of one year on since I broke up with a long-term girlfriend. Um, and kind of, I mean, we talked a little bit about in the instability and the 
the unpredictable nature of being a freelancer and and then and the actual knock-on effect that has on a on finances but that strain on what it can do on a relationship really doesn't get broadcasted and for me i think that relationship ended because of the time and the money stress and i mean i mean it sounds stupid that a relationship would end because of those things but i think it put such such a strain on the relationship that we weren't like connecting with each other again and and i thought well i went into that relationship thinking that the relationship had to be everything and your relationship can't be everything that's why you have friends that's why you have colleagues that's why you have family because if you put the strain of everything on a relationship then it it will just fold actually in reflection i think that was the only stable thing i had at the, at the time i was going through a really unstable period um like financially and i think the kind of instagram culture of comparing ourselves to other people doesn't help there's something i read the other day that was saying you know people are, are comparing your things that you see on Instagram are kind of people's highlight reels, you know, the best bits, and you're comparing that to your partner in their pyjamas, which is kind of the behind the scenes, you know, and they're never going to live up to that over a prolonged amount of time. Anyway, there's just something to think about. I actually want to end the podcast from now on on a kind of motivational moment and a kind of short motivational thing that kind of empowers uh and something that i find interesting as well so the the one that i'm going to end on today is about belief and the story is about um the four minute mile which was seen um you know back in the 50s as this uh, impossible thing that the the human heart would explode if a runner tried to break the four-minute mile. It was seen as that impossible barrier that couldn't be broken. And for decades, runners tried and failed. People died trying. And May the 6th, 1954, Roger Bannister breaks the four-minute mile. And he does it in kind of three minutes, 59 seconds and four-tenths of a second. So it like just breaks the four-minute mile. And, you know, people are amazed. They think this is an impossible thing that he's done. Anyway, this record that stood for decades got broken within 46 days when an Australian runner broke it again. I think his time was something like 3 minutes and 58 seconds. He broke it by a a second. One year later, three runners break the four-minute mile in one race. You know, this thing that stood for 50 years, 50 years on, more than a thousand runners have broken the four minute mile. So, I mean, what I'd want to end on here is, do we think that in 1954, kind of the human race had a massive growth spur or an evolution, um, an evolutionary change that allowed us to break it? No, of course not. Did Nike or Adidas bring out the new version of the trainers that allowed the technology to help us no of course not what changes the mentality and the belief that the this four minute mile was not an impossible barrier and that was enough that mindset shift was enough to 
to break it, to, to believe that you could break it. Anyway, next week we will be speaking to Chris O'Connor, the, the, one of the writers for Red Ladder, for BBC Radio, for Riptide, um, and also a podcaster for Mentality, which is an amazing podcast um, which focuses on mental health within men. And he will be speaking about his writing career to date um, and strategies that he's looking at and things that he does generally. Thank you for listening to Chapter 3. I hope it was useful. See you again next time.